0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. This morning we're looking at verses 36 through 46. This is page 832 if you're using the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 26, and beginning in verse 36, this is the word of God. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Amen. That's for the reading of God's word. Let's seek his help. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, what a glorious, marvelous portion of your word. We confess, indeed, what we have sung, our great, great need of you. We stand on holy ground as we receive this, your word. Lord, we ask that you would come to us and bless us. We plead with you for grace. Pour out your spirit upon us. Come, O spirit of truth, and guide us, your people, into wonderful truth. Give us grace to receive it, to believe it, to live according to that truth. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it so happened that I was working on this sermon, thinking about this event on October 31st, which, of course, is such an important day for those of us who cherish all of the the events of the Reformation, the day that nail, uh, Luther nailed those 95 theses back in 1517. But I was thinking about that, and it really made me, or thinking about the text really made me think about another day, actually a night, some five and a half years later after that, when Luther was there at the Diet of Worms. It was April uh, the 17th, 1521. And you may recall that, that Luther had been asked whether he would be real, willing to recant all the errors contained in his writings. And he had asked for 24 hours, 24 hours to deliberate what would be his response. And they granted it to him. And so he had a, a night to think about it, but it was not a night of great sleep. For Martin Luther, as we can imagine, we can imagine just the, the anguish of soul he was experiencing, understood all that was at, was, was at stake, uh, Understood understanding what it might cost him, wrestling with questions of, am I really willing to stand and say, so much of the church has been wrong about such important things, am I alone wise? And yet, as he uh, wrestled with it, he knew the stance that he had to take. For the truth of Christ, well, he penned a prayer which he prayed that night, and it began with these words, "'O God, Almighty God everlasting, how dreadful is the world! Behold how its mouth opens to swallow me up, and how small is my faith!'' in thee. Oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. If I am to depend on any strength of this world, all is over. The knell is struck. Sentence is gone forth. Oh God, oh God, oh thou, my God, help me against the wisdom. Of this world, the prayer uh, continued. I'm not going to cite the entire prayer there, but what made me think of that prayer is the fact that that prayer has been referred to as Luther's Gethsemane. Luther's Gethsemane. Well, friends, I suppose uh, thinking, imagining that experience of Luther perhaps gives us just a just a, a tiny sense of what we see in our text this morning. This is the original. This is the true. Gethsemane experienced that of our Lord. Oh what sorrow, oh what anguish, what dreadful terror. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel that we see the particular these particular emotions on the part of our Lord as we see mentioned in in verses 37 and 38. But our our, our Lord met this anguish with prayer. Oh, how our Lord prayed. In contrast with the disciples, he prayed. He prayed like no one else ever did, prayed like no one else ever could. Matthew shows us three instances of Jesus going, praying, and then returning to his disciples. In contrast with the disciples and without any of their support on this night of unimaginable crisis, our Lord drew near to God in prayer, and he purposed to finish the work given him by the Father. Our message this morning is this. Amidst the failure of his disciples and his own anguish over what was before him, Jesus was resolved to obey the Father all the way to the cross. For our three points this morning, we're simply going to consider kind of the three parts of that statement. We'll consider first the failure— of the disciples secondly our lord's own anguish but then lastly his unwavering resolve unto perfect obedience so let's think on those three things begin with then with the uh, the failure of the disciples the text focuses obviously primarily about Christ this is about him but there is a dual focus the spotlight also falls on these disciples and they're not pre- presented in such a positive light are they It's not a pretty picture. I would say as a side note, once again, I would say amen to what Pastor Hulse showed us last week. Here again, I think this gives us more reason to believe that the testimony of the New Testament is absolutely true. If these disciples had been making this stuff up, surely they would have presented themselves in a more positive light But on that note, it's worth mentioning, as some have this narrative, has caused some to raise the question, how did the disciples bear eyewitness testimony of events through which they slept? As we see it in our text this morning, we can imagine Matthew writing his gospel, you know, consulting Peter and the sons of Zebedee and saying, you know, you were with them there that night. Tell me about it. What was it like? What was, what was his praying like? What was Jesus like? And they're embarrassed and having to admit, well, we kind of fell asleep that night. What an embarrassment indeed. No doubt, of course, despite their failings, the Spirit inspired a faithful and inerrant witness, a testimony of all that took place. We don't know exactly how that happened. Perhaps During our Lord's resurrection appearances, he was able to, you know, fill in information and the the missing gaps due to their sleepiness, and the Spirit surely could call to mind a perfect remembrance of things that they saw and heard, even if they were half asleep. Of course, the Spirit could reveal things to us that we did not even witness in person, but the apostles are said to have been eyewitnesses of the event's of Christ, his death, his his life, death, resurrection. And clearly we see in the text that they did witness some of our Lord's agony. We see in verse 37 that it was, it was as he was taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He told them so in verse 38. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. At any rate, note just, just how terribly miserably miserably they failed their lord and matthew uh, to to think that matthew recorded that this if he recorded this event right after recording those those boasting proud words that we saw of peter boasting you recall we saw last time of such such loyal devotion not only from peter but the others as well as we saw, they'd all, all promised. they'd all promised Jesus in so many words, you can count on me, right? I'll be there for you, Jesus, all the way and even unto death, how empty those promises turned out to be. Here was their Lord, here was their master, here was the, the one they'd been with and learned from all these days and, and, and here at the, the hour when he needed their, their support at the most. And he wasn't asking a lot of them, right? It's not like he was asking them to die for him that night as they foolishly claimed that they would be willing to do. All he was asking was for them to be there with him, right? To, to 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 be there with me. Pray, remain here and watch with me. Surely Jesus knew that it was it was he, not they. He was the one who would have to do the serious work that night, but all he was asking was for them to be there with him. And we see their utter failure, utter failure, even to play a small supporting role in any of this. They failed him. Three times they failed him. He returns to them the first time, verse 40, and he finds them, them sleeping. He addresses Peter particularly. Maybe, maybe Peter, you know, wakes up a little bit from his sleep, but what sad words for Peter to have to hear. So could you not watch with me one hour, not even one hour of supports, Peter? We see those, those well-known words of verse 41. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Those are words which Uh, surely uh, were intended, as they rightly have intended to to, to be, to provide more uh, broad application than simply the unique use that we see in this, uh, in a text this morning, in this unique experience of Jesus, and we will return to that. But it is clear, Jesus was asking them, stay awake for him, stay awake for me. He reproved them for not doing so. Could you not watch? And he asked them, Watch. That is, stay awake. Watch with me. Watch and pray. They failed him the once. They failed him twice. We see in verse 43 the second time. It says again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. No doubt this was, it was, it was late. They'd been through a lot. They were tired. Their eyes were heavy, but this was no excuse. And Jesus didn't even try to wake them up, right? That time, let them sleep. And then the third time, third time he spoke words which which are hard to interpret Uh truthfully. I think the ESV is not particularly helpful on this point when it supplies those words later on. Sleep and take your rest later on. I, I do think that other translations get this better. I think as some have suggested here, that really the words of our Lord in this particular instance uh, are somewhat ironic. There's an ironic command intended as a rebuke, kind of like, just just go ahead, sleep on, I'm kind of like a, a, a parent rebuking a la- lazy teenager who refuses to get out of bed, right? Are you just going to sleep your wife? Fine, just sleep through school, sleep your entire life away obviously it's not that our lord was wanting them to continue sleeping at this point there was there was no way that that was going to happen the arresting party was about to arrive but i think it was kind of like saying you've failed me you've slept through the hour when i needed you the most you might as well just sleep you might as well just sleep through the entire night but the point here is that they 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 utterly Failed him rather than providing him support that he needed amidst his anguish. They only became a they only added to that by their failing to to support him, and it was painful, truly painful. And that brings us to our our second point this morning. We see not only the failure of the disciples, but we see our Lord's anguish, anguish over what was happening, anguish over what was. Before him, if it is true that, that what Luther would endure on that dreadful night in Worms, some 15 centuries later was nothing at all like this, and that is true, it's nonetheless true that Luther could know that all that he experienced that, that night, God truly understood. God understood what it was like to experience such anguish. God himself had, had come and experienced unimaginable human anguish in Jesus Christ. I think this is one of the great texts that show us so wonderfully, so powerfully, both the true humanity as well as the true deity of Jesus Christ. Clearly, he was God, and that's proven in so many ways in the Bible, Matthew's gospel included, but I think we see it in our text in a number of ways. To start with, proven by the reality of what was before him. I think that itself is proof of Christ's deity. What do I mean by that? Well, only God, only God could carry upon his shoulders the, the, the weight of the salvation of all of the world. Only God could, could, could bear the curse of the sin of all who would ever believe in him. The efficacy of the work of Christ clearly is, is tied to his deity. Only God could save. Jesus had to be God. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. And yet the wonder of the incarnation is not only that Jesus is God, it is that in Jesus, God truly became man. And how strikingly we see that in our text this morning, true human emotions, the end of verse 37 says he was sorrowful and troubled, that that could be rendered as some translations put it, anguished. And distressed or deeply distressed. The parallel verse in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14 and verse 33 says, uh, at least in the ESV, it says greatly distressed, but it uses a word that's even been translated horrified, horrified, or, or even the, the word trembled. Christ trembled at the prospect of what was before him. Yes. As a true man, what does the book of Hebrews tell us about that? It's so important that he did, so important that he was. He was made like us, made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Later, we're told that, that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because in every respect, in every respect, he has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, yet without sin. Of course, that's the wonderful, important key right there, uh, clearly to experience Fear and anxiety is not necessarily a a sinful human reaction. Quite the the contrary. Indeed, that's part of being truly human. How could, how could our Lord not experience such given all that he was about to face for a, for a man, a true man, not to be moved by any measure of fear, distress, or anxiety in this context? Well, that would call into question, is this person truly human? On one level, any any true man would not have would have to have been out of his mind not to want to avoid what Jesus was about to endure. And let's be clear about this this morning. Almost, almost might sound hard to hear, but Jesus did not want to go to the cross. Jesus did not want to go to the cross. Matthew focuses especially on on the, the sorrow that it caused him. Verse thirty eight. My soul is sorrowful even unto death, even to death. I'm filled with such sorrow, I feel like I could die. It reminds, might call the mind the uh the, the prophet Jonah when he was not not sorrowful, but so angry with God. He said, I'm angry enough to die. Jonah chapter four, verse nine. Here it's again not not anger, but Sorrow, and as an unlike the case of Jonah, this was not a sinful emotion. This was sinless, sinless yet very real, human sorrow, indeed, sorrow so deep, sorrow beyond anything any else would ever or ever could imagine. It calls, I think, probably ought to call to mind the, the refrain of the psalmist that we see in Psalms 42 and 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why? Why are you in turmoil within me? Stop and think about it. The answer to that question, the question of the psalmist, the answer to the question is the cross, the cross. The psalmist was looking to the Lord, looking to his promises, looking forward to the coming Messiah, the one who himself would experience that he was experienced to the extent that the psalmist was able to look to the Lord in faith. He was blessed to be sharing, uh, in, in a way, sharing in the sufferings of the coming Messiah. Only the path through suffering would end in glory. And it was Christ then who enabled him, even amidst his great sorrow, to look to the Lord in hope, in faith. Hope in God, he writes, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Sorrow with hope, but make no mistake about it. This was true sorrow, indeed. But to me, most striking about, most striking of all, that our Lord experiences in this text is the fact that there were things that Jesus did not fully understand as man. Here again, this is difficult to wrap our brains about. As God, he knew everything. He was omniscient. But as true man, we know that there were things that Jesus had to come to learn. Although he was a son, he learned obedience, we're told in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And I think that part of his learning was coming to understand the absolute necessity of the cross. Was it absolutely necessary for the Son of God so to suffer, to suffer hell, to drink that cup of which he speaks? Might it be possible for the cup to pass? This is the cup of the wrath of God. Psalm 75 verse 8, for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked, the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Was it really necessary for the son to drink that cup, for the son to die the death of the wicked, to take upon himself the judgment? Do the wicked, the judgment do you and me, and sinners. Was it necessary, truly, to be forsaken of the Father, to become the enemy of the one with whom he had known perfect fellowship and love forever and ever and ever? Oh, the horror of it all. How could it not have him truly questioning, requesting? It was a sincere request in verse 39. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me this might strike us as strange, maybe contrary to what we've seen, because we've seen Jesus speak words that would suggest that certainly he did know the certainty of his imminent death. Even earlier in this very chapter, verse 24, he told told Judas that, that the Son of Man goes as it has been written of him. Surely that was A reference, was it not, to the the settled purpose of God prophesied in the scriptures? Surely he knew that he had to die. How do we make sense of him now here questioning this? One commentator says this, quote, What is happening in Gethsemane is not the discovery of this as a new fact, but the need to come to to terms in emotion and will with what he has already known in theory. It's like he's known it with his head, but he has to come to know it in his heart. Maybe there's truth to that. Maybe that's what's going on. I also think that that as true man, our Lord, grew in knowledge. He grew up in terms of his full understanding of the plan of God. Again, I don't think he would have made that request if indeed he'd not wondered if it were possible. Could there be any other way? I think this should encourage you, friends, if you if you ever struggle to understand the absolute necessity of the cross while you're in good company, even Jesus himself, the man Christ Jesus came to learn, and what he came to learn was that it was not possible for that cup to pass. He would have to drink it, and he would have to drink it down to the dregs. Who could fully understand that? It was indeed incomprehensibly horrifying. How could it not cause deep, deep anxiety, fear, distress, sorrow, anguish, anguish indeed. But that makes what we see next all the more wonderful and marvelous as we move to our last point this morning, we see how amidst the failure of the disciples and his own anguish, We see his unwavering resolve, unwavering resolve unto perfect obedience. I think, again, I can't get away from that word growing. It really grew on me this week. Pardon the pun there. But I think we would say growing, growing resolve or or full grown. I would say in a sense, we could say here before our eyes, we witness his growing resolve now becoming full grown. We're given a sense, I think, of that with that third prayer, your will be done. It's now settled, even from his human experience, even his great anguish notwithstanding. It's like it's going to happen. The die is now cast, as it were. He will drink that cup. He will obey the Father. He will go to the cross. He's ready to say what we see him say in verses 45 and 46. The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinner. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He's ready to go. He goes willingly. So important to say that. Willingly. As one writer puts it, the will of God is, is not imposed on an unwitting victim, but is deliberately faced and shared by the Son Himself. And it's not that there was ever any question of uh, the loyalty of the Son to the Father, never any question of His commitment to obedience. Just again, growth in understanding of what the path of obedience must look like, and as he grew to understand, he only grew more and more and more determined to obey. Perfect submission. Submission reflected in what he did with his anxiety and his fears and his sorrows. Where did he go with them? He took them to the Lord in prayer. True prayer, godly prayer, involves Submission. When we pray, we are asking God for things agreeable to his will. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Even in that first prayer, right? Falling on his face, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So even, even the request was made in perfect submission. But note the progression then, verse 42. He's gone from, gone from asking whether the cup could pass to where it seems he's more fully come fully to understand that it cannot pass. And again, with more complete understanding comes more complete commitment. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink your will be done. First third prayer, verse 44, he just, just repeats those very same wonderful words. And so three times, Three times in contrast with the three failures or three times of failure on the part of disciples, perhaps a a link to his three times purposing obedience and resisting the temptation of the, the devil in his wilderness temptation. But three prayers of submission. Just think on that. Our Lord made his entire life a prayer of submission all the way to the cross, where at last he breathed his last breath and he gave up his spirit. His life ended in prayer, didn't it? Into your hands I commit my spirit. This was total commitment, total commitment to the will of the Father. What good news. This was total commitment to doing all that was necessary to accomplish your salvation, dear friends. The salvation of all who will trust in him. And it makes me wonder if there are any sitting here listening this morning who have never done that, who have never come to this Savior and surrendered your life to him in true repentance and faith. If you've never done that, we would plead with you this morning, how could you not be compelled by the love of a Savior such as this, one who is willing to drink that cup for sinners just like you? the cup of God's judgment. He took the judgment that your sins deserve if you would turn to him this morning to think that here he is graciously, willingly, lovingly inviting you to come. If you refuse him, if you continue persistent in your rebellion and at last you die in your sins, you will at last drink that cup yourself. You will suffer the eternal judgment that your sins Deserve? Why not come? Why wait? Today is the day of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on him. Trust him. Even Christians this morning, may your faith be strengthened as you look to him afresh and find in him a Savior worthy of your trust and worthy of your resolve unto perfect uh, and perfect. Not perfect of the worthy of your resolve unto obedience. And your, your obedience, my obedience is imperfect. There's sin in us, but we can say it this way: Jesus gave himself wholly for us that we might give ourselves wholly unto him. And if we've come to him, we understand that our life is not our own. You belong to Christ. You are his. There's so much we could say this morning in terms of what our text teaches us about what that life ought to look like in Christ. Let me end very briefly with three words of application. The first, we've seen much of, uh, much of this lately, pray. Pray. The Christian life is a life of prayer. Our Lord surely teaches us that the best place to, to, to be is on our faces before, the, before the, the Lord in prayer. There we know fellowship with Christ, and only then do we find strength to obey Him, to walk with Him. Those words in verse 41 are for us watch and pray. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak in, ch- in saving us. God has, has changed our hearts, He's changed our will such that we desire to be faithful, but we we find that with our will, we must fight against the sinful flesh. And such an important way that we do that is in prayer, in prayer, finding strength from God. The old hymn put it well, I hear this say, thy strength indeed is small child of weakness. Watch and pray, find in me thine all in all. And then secondly, cling to Christ, cling to him, even when your friends fail you. Friends will fail you, right? They failed our Lord in this text. And so our Lord fully understands that when the disciples failed him, what did he do? What did he do? He drew near to his God. The Apostle Paul understood what it was like to be failed by his friends, even in his apostolic ministry, even some of the faithful ones. He wrote in 2 Timothy 4, verses 16 and 17, he wrote, at my first event defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But he wrote in verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. When your friends forsake you. Run to the one whom you who you know will never, ever forsake you. What, what, what irony here? Yeah. Jesus goes to the Father. Ironically, he's the one who knows that he had to be forsaken by the Father. We can say wonderfully, Jesus was forsaken so that you and I would never, ever have to be forsaken. Let the world forsake you, even your friends. Jesus will never forsake you last point of application. Surrender to him your anguish. Anguish is a strong word there, isn't it? It might sound a bit extreme here, but I mean the suffering, the grief, the pain, the anxiety, the distress. We all experience those things, though we never, ever will experience them as Jesus did. And Jesus understands Jesus understands our, our human weakness, even our, our struggle in terms of our inability to understand all of God's purposes and our circumstances in our lives. And we know, of course, that, that, that with us, there's, there's sin mixed in with the way in which we experience all of these things. But God calls us by His grace to surrender it all to Him. Christian, you are, you are not to be ruled by your anguish, you're to submit to God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt you. What, is, what does Peter say? Cast all of your cares, cast all of your anxieties upon him, for he cares for you. You will experience suffering, grief, sorrow, pain, anxiety, distress, even the frustration of your own limits of understanding, but you are not you are not to be ruled by those things luther did not succumb to his anguish on that dark night in april 1521 he felt like the the dreadful world was against him was about to open up its mouth to swallow him up he prayed o oh god o oh god thou my god help me against the wisdom of this world. And we know the wonderful story, how God came to his aid. He helped him. Uh, Luther was able to, to, God lifted him up uh, in such a way that we, he was, he was able to rise above his anguish, his fear. He was able to rise up and, and, and make that wonderful stand that he took. Here I stand. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. God helped him. And Luther overcame. But Luther overcame, not by his own strength. Luther overcame because Christ had overcome. And by the mighty fortress, the power and the grace of Jesus, the Messiah of the true Gethsemane, Luther was able to take that stand that he took. And it's that same power, it's that same grace, which is at work in your life and my life. And so, dear Christian, no, your anguish is not to be your master. Jesus is to be your master and his grace, his grace is sufficient for you to be able to say with Christ, to be able to say in Christ, not my will, but your will be done. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we would pray that by your spirit working in us uh, out of that life that we have in Christ, that that would be our prayer. Lord, use your word, we pray, to conform us more unto his image, to make us those who are ready to abandon our own uh, will and to do your will. O Lord, fill us with your spirit and your word this day, that we might live by it, that we might walk in the obedience of the faith that is in Christ Jesus. For it's in his name that we do pray. Amen.